So we're doing a sermon series on the life of Elijah the prophet. And we have seen that throughout his ministry, he has been contending with King Ahab. And then we saw in the last chapter, Ahab dies. And then today we're going to see in our chapter that his son dies. And uh, this is actually not a very well-known story, um, but it is referenced several times in the New Testament, most notably at the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, both in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Elijah is cited by name, and uh, it's referencing this story, our story. And so we're going to take a look at the story, we're going to study the story, and we're going to see what does it have to teach us, and what does it ultimately tell us about Jesus. So if you could turn to page 4 in your bulletins, this is... Um, 2 Kings chapter 1, we're actually going to back up a little bit and read the very last uh, few verses of 1 Kings chapter 22. So the text says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. This is Second Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Akron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Akron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is because is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Akron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to Elijah a captain of fifty men with his fifty. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. 
that the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the cap, sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal, Zebub, the god of Akron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Israel? This is the word of God. So, (laughs) what is this story about? I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to see, first, the Lord of the Flies. Secondly, we're going to look at the arresting soldiers. And then finally, we're going to see this connection between Jesus and Elijah. So first, the Lord of the Flies. So, in the story, Ahab, the king of Israel, has died. And in his place... His son, Ahaziah, becomes king of Israel. And the story tells us that Ahaziah is much like his father. He did evil on the side of God. He worshipped pagan idols. And then one day, just two years into his reign, he falls from the, um, the upper terrace of his palace, and he's injured, and it's a very serious injury because his life is in danger. And it's in this moment when his life is on the line, when he's pushed to the edge, there's no margin, that we see so very clearly what his ultimate commitment is. Because he sends messengers and he tells them, go inquire of Baal, Zebub, the god of Akron. Now, Akron is about 150 miles away. It's actually outside the lands of Israel. It's one of the major cities of the Philistines. And there was a, a, a magnificent temple in Akron um, to the god of that city who was renowned in the ancient world for his healing powers, for his healing abilities. Now, what's really interesting in the story is that Baal Zebub is a corruption of the actual name because the god of Akron his name is Baal Zebul. Now, Baal means Lord, and uh, Zebul means a uh, magnificent one or exalted one. And so Baal Zebul means the exalted Lord of Akron. But you'll notice that the writer of our text, he changes one letter, the last letter in the name, so that it's not Baal Zebul, it's Baal Zebub. Zebub means flies. 
So the, the change of the name, he changes the name to Lord of the Flies. Not a very distinguished name, right? Um, basically, it's Lord of the Dung Heap. Lord of Garbage. That's what the name change means. I want you to know that this is not just a silly word pun. This is not just childish name-calling. But the Bible here is doing something very serious. It's telling us something very profound. You see, Ahaziah, rather than turning to the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, who actually had the power to heal, rather than going to the God of Israel, who loves his people, who rescued them out of bondage uh, in Egypt, the, the Lord of Israel, Ahaziah turns to the Lord of the flies, this worthless idol, this empty God who cannot save. But it goes even deeper than that. Because Baal-zebub, this is not the only place his name appears in the Bible. His name shows up three more times in the New Testament, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all tell the same story. And you'll probably recognize the name if I were to say it quickly. Because if you say the name quickly, what is it? It's Beelzebub. Okay? This is Beelzebub. Do you remember the story? Jesus heals this demon-possessed man, and then the Pharisees accuse Jesus of healing, not by the power of God, but by the power of Beelzebub. And they're basically accusing Jesus of committing the sin of Ahaziah that he's consorting with. He's drawing power from Beelzebub. And they say, by the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. Because the Bible says that Beelzebub is not just an idol, he's actually a demon. There's an evil spirit behind this false god. Now, let's unpack all of this. The Bible is telling us something profound about idolatry. What is an idol? An idol is anything that claims to be God in your life. It's anything that takes the place of God in your life. It doesn't have to have a formal name. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be manifested as some kind of statue housed in some you know, physical temple. It is anything in your life, and it's a good thing, but you make it the ultimate thing, and it promises to you life and joy, and in exchange, it demands your ultimate allegiance, your absolute devotion, but then in the end, it's an illusion. It does not satisfy. It will leave you empty and disillusioned. You will go to it thinking it is the exalted Lord, but in the end, it's the Lord of the Flies. And it's more than that, because the Bible says it's not just an empty idol, it is also a demonic power. If you give your life to this idol, if you give your hopes and dreams to it, it will crush you, it will destroy you, it will demand everything from you, and because it doesn't love you, it will use you up, it will chew you up and spit you out. Because the Bible says it's not just an idol, it is an evil Lord. It is a demonic spirit. Uh, Several weeks ago, we all heard the news 
that uh, very sadly, Matthew Perry was found dead in his home. They're still doing an investigation, so we don't know the cause of death. But Matthew Perry uh, died at a relatively young age of 54. About a year ago, I actually read his memoirs, which he had just published, called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. And in the book, he's very open and honest about his life. He says that as a young man, he was this struggling actor in Los Angeles, and he was hustling. He would just go diligently to audition after audition, and he managed to land a series of very minor roles in like guest spots on TV shows, or sometimes he would get on pilots, but uh, nothing came of it. And he says that his greatest dream, what he wanted most of all, was to be famous. He thought being famous would swallow up the emptiness and the loneliness of his life. And in the book, he says that one night he reached a place of such frustration and despair that he got on his knees and he prayed. And he, recorded, he records his prayer in, the, in his memoirs. He said, God... You can do whatever you want with me. Just please make me famous. You can do whatever you want. Just make me famous. He calls it his Faustian prayer because three weeks later, he was cast as Chandler on Friends. And for those of you who were alive during the 1990s, you know what an enormous cultural phenomenon this was. It was a runaway hit and success, this TV show. Overnight, Matthew Perry had his face on magazine covers. He was offered starring roles in premiere movies. He was dating glamorous women. He became super famous, like one of the most recognizable famous people in the world. But he says in his memoirs, he was miserable. He says there was, a, there was this howling emptiness that would not quiet. This is what he wrote. I was clinging to the notion that something outside of me would fix me. But I had had all that the world had to offer. Julia Roberts as my girlfriend. I just bought my dream house that looked across the whole city. I'm making a million dollars a week. I win, right? I had it all but it was all a trick. They just weren't the answer. There's a a really sad place in his memoirs where he says that um, all of the Friends characters were uh, based and shaped on each of the actors' personalities and life experiences. And he says that no one was more like his character than himself. He says that uh, Chandler being is Matthew Perry. There's no difference. He says they spoke alike. They had the same kind of humor. He says that on the show, Chandler's parents were divorced, and that childhood trauma trauma caused him, caused Chandler to always sort of deflect deeper emotions by cracking jokes. He says that was all based on his real life. And so they lived these parallel lives, but, he says, the real Matthew Perry at the tender age of 25, became the youngest cast member on the number one TV show in America. 
And then at age 25, he came into great fame and fortune beyond his wildest dreams. And he says because of that success, he lived in this state of arrested development. He would sleep with countless women. He lived on painkillers. He was a raging alcoholic. He says that he was so miserable that at various stages in his life, he would self-medicate by taking up to 55 Vicodin pills per day. He was in and out of drug rehab. He says you can track his uh, sobriety by watching the show. Every time he was sober, he would gain weight. Every time he was high on drugs, he would thin out. He would be sober for a while, but then quickly fall back into addiction. He said it was a living hell. Meanwhile, during the narrative arc of the show, the character of Chandler was deepening and maturing so that by the final season, Chandler settled down, got married to Monica, and had children. And he says that those final episodes were almost unbearable for him to film. He says he was drunk and high on set the entire time. He said because... He wanted those things so desperately, but they evaded him. It was like this alternate life that he could have had that was staring him every day in the face. He would read it in the script, and it filled him with self-loathing. Matthew Perry, in his book, he actually talks about God and spirituality quite a bit. And in the book, he says that all of his life, in his words, was trying to fill a spiritual hole with acting and fame and then drugs, but nothing worked. They were all illusions and false gods. Most of us in this room will never achieve the heights of success of Matthew Perry. And so maybe we're still under the delusion that there's something out there. That if we could just have it, if we could just achieve it, then we'll be satisfied, then we'll be filled up. But the Bible says that you began that journey thinking what you're pursuing is the exalted Lord. But you will eventually discover it is the Lord of the flies. And even more haunting than that, it is Beelzebub. It is, it is this dark Lord who will destroy your life. So that's the first point. Secondly, let's look at the arresting soldiers. So in the story, uh, God sends his prophet Elijah to confront King Ahaziah with this word of judgment. And Ahaziah responds by sending soldiers to arrest Elijah. And, he, and, and in the story, he actually sends three waves of soldiers. Each wave is a captain and 50 men. And Elijah then calls down fire to fall on the soldiers so that the first two waves of these soldiers are wiped out. And then the third captain, seeing all of this, he comes to his senses, he pleads for mercy, and so he's spared. He and his men are spared. And that's the story. Now, modern people get really upset by this. And they say, this is why I don't like the Old Testament. Just the violence and the bloodshed. I much prefer the New Testament. Because 
Jesus is full of compassion and love, but the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and judgment. And I think it's important to address this, so let me take some time. I I want you to know, first of all, that the Bible, in both the Old and New Testament, very consistently says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible is unequivocal on this. The wages of sin is death. You see this especially in Jesus. There is no one who spoke about judgment and hell with blood-curdling vividness more than Jesus. He described hell as the outer darkness. He said it was this unquenchable fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, this very graphic image of eternal torment. And so Jesus did not make light of sin, but at every turn, he said sin sin deserves judgment and death. So that's the New Testament. That's Jesus. And then when you go to the Old Testament, we see again and again that God is full of mercy and patience. The classic example here is Moses standing before God at Mount Sinai. The text says that God passed before Moses and he declares his glory so that in uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, this is God's self-revelation, self-disclosure of who he is. God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and sins, listen to this, but who by no means will clear the guilty. So what do we learn here? We learn that God in both the Old and New Testament is a God of both mercy and judgment. It is not one or the other. They are not in conflict against each other, but in God, they perfectly coexist. And you might say, how can that possibly be? They seem like opposing forces. Hold on to that question. We'll try to answer it at the end. But the point I want to make here is that the soldiers in the story absolutely deserved death because of their opposition to God, because they opposed the word of God. And some of you are saying at this point, wait a minute, wait a minute. The soldiers were just following orders. They were under the command of their captain. And so the guilt is on him. And even the captain was just following the orders of the king, right? It was King Ahaziah who issued the arrest order. And therefore, why should a hundred men die for the sins of Ahaziah? And here is the answer. In the Bible, and more broadly speaking, in the ancient world, you are not just guilty for what you do as an individual, but you are also guilty as part of a collective group. I know this goes against our modern intuitions, but in the Bible, you are not a solitary individual, but you are connected to your family, to your tribe, and to your nation. And I want to make the case to you that this fits with reality. This is how human beings are wired. We are not just individuals, 
we are part of a larger whole. So, for example, when you look at um, Ahaziah's mini-biography, up there in the first paragraph, in verse 52, it says, Ahaziah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother. So, what is the text saying? It is not saying, coincidentally, (laughs) Ahaziah happened to commit the exact same sins as his parents, but it is saying that there is an organic connection between their sins and his sins. Why? Because he is their son. Judah and Noah are my sons. For better or for worse, you will largely inherit my virtues and my vices. That does not mean that Ahaziah was fated. He still has individual agencies. He is still responsible for the choices and the decisions that he makes. But there is a natural organic unity because you are not an individual, you are not just an individual, you belong to a family. This is why, uh, in the Bible, God doesn't just save individuals, He saves whole families. And praise God for that. If you commit your life to Christ, if you raise your children in the faith, then the Bible says, in the natural order, in the natural course of things, your children will also be saved. That's wonderful. That's the way it should be, right? It's a, it's a, an, an amazing comfort and encouragement to parents. But it goes both ways. The soldiers are not just judged for what they do as individuals. They are also judged together as a group. This makes perfect sense if you serve in the military. Nobody who serves in the military believes or even wants that their fate should be separate from the fate of their unit. You live and die with your platoon. That's good. That's natural. Moreover, this whole idea that the soldiers were just following orders and they had no choice in the matter is proved false by the example of the third captain. Because if the third captain was just simply following orders, right, he had no choice in the matter, then why doesn't he do the exact same thing as the other two captains? Why is there a break in the pattern? Why does he change? And if it's the case that the third captain says, you know what, I want nothing to do with this, he decides to defy King Ahaziah, then why does he still go to Elijah? Why doesn't he just skip town and disappear? And what is happening, what the text is showing is is that the third captain is able to both honor the king, he goes to Elijah, he faithfully delivers the message, he even brings Elijah back to the king, which was his orders, but he ultimately honors God. Because he says to Elijah, you decide. You decide whether my men and I should live or die. 
And notice, in the story, he does not protest his innocence. He doesn't say, how dare you? You have no right to kill us. He acknowledges that they are under the sentence of death, that they deserve to die, which is why he pleads for mercy. He says, let my life and the life of my men be precious in your sight. And so because he revered God above all, even while following his orders, he and his men live. Now, what's the point of this passage? (laughs) What is this story about Elijah and the soldiers about? It's telling us a very simple message. It's telling us that God will vindicate his word. King Ahaziah thought that because he had soldiers, because he had military power, he could control and ultimately stop the word of God. This is, after all, the way that it works in the larger pagan world. Prophets and priests in the ancient world were under the control of the state. They were, in effect, agents of the government. We see this throughout human history. But the Bible says that is completely backwards. All governments, all earthly powers, the Bible says, are subject to God. It is God who determines the fate of nations. It is God who decides when nations rise and fall. And therefore, kings and rulers have authority only by the permission of God. And it doesn't matter if these governmental authorities are even aware of the God of the Bible. Nevertheless, they are subordinate and ultimately accountable to the God of the Bible. I want you to know that this has given enormous comfort to the church over the centuries. You know, the church in America is a historical aberration. Because relatively speaking, we have the freedom of worship. This sermon, if I were to preach it in China or Russia, would put me in jail. If I were to give it in Turkey or in India, they would arrest me. Because throughout most of history, and still throughout most of the world, the church has suffered intense persecution and opposition. But the Bible says that these hostile governments have no real power. That God has permitted them to exist for a while, but only for his divine purposes, only for the furtherance of his gospel, And in the end, the church will prevail because nothing can stop the word of God. And so in the story, God sends fire down on the soldiers because God is protecting the ministry of Elijah. And he strengthens his prophet to go to the king and speak the truth. And notice in the text, there is a kind of redundancy in what Elijah has to say. Did you notice that? He literally says the same thing word for word three times. There's this sort of repetitiveness. It's almost tedious. But that's the point. 
nothing can alter the word of God. Not a single word will be displaced. And then Elijah, as God's faithful minister, he boldly proclaims it. I want you to know that this ministry, the ministry of Elijah, continues today in the church. I want you to know that nothing, that no powers, no man-made authorities can stop the ministry of the gospel. If you oppose the work of the gospel, if you try to stop the church of God, you bring judgment upon yourself. And therefore, as followers of Christ, let us be bold. Let us take to heart the example of Stephen in the book of Acts or Luther and Tyndale on the Reformation, or Jim Elliot and uh, Corey Ten Boom in modern times, and countless other Christian martyrs, let us be fearless for Jesus, because what can man do to us? Nothing can stop the church. Nothing can stop the church. All right, last point. Jesus and Elijah. So as I said before, This story of Elijah and the soldiers serves as an important but somewhat hidden backdrop to Jesus' crucifixion. Because in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Elijah is cited by name at the cross. And it's worthwhile here, I think, reading the text as a whole Both Matthew and Mark's accounts are very similar. So I'm just going to read to you Matthew's version. It's printed for you in the bulletin. This is Matthew chapter 27, verses 46 through 50. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So on the cross... Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the famous cry of dereliction. And in Hebrew, my God is Eli. El in Hebrew means God. E is a possessive suffix. It's like my. So Eli, my God. And in Hebrew, Elijah is pronounced Eliyah. So they're very similar, right? Eli, Eliyah. And so some people in the crowd thought that Jesus was crying, was calling out to Elijah. Now, why mention this detail? Of all the things to include in the account of the cross, if this was simply a case of mispronunciation, that some people misheard what Jesus was actually saying, why include it? If you notice, the accounts, the the gospel writers are very spare in their accounts of the crucifixion. They're very selective on what details to include. And therefore, what that tells us is that this particular detail is important. 
the fact that some in the crowd thought that Jesus was calling upon Elijah. Now, what explains this reference is 2 Kings chapter 1. It's our text. And so very quickly, let's review what is 2 Kings chapter 1 about. It is about God protecting his prophet, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Soldiers are sent to capture Elijah, but fire from heaven comes down and destroys the soldiers because God will not permit hostile soldiers to harm or to stop his prophet. That's the story. Fast forward several centuries. Here comes Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus performs astonishing miracles. He raises the dead. He feeds the poor. He heals the sick. If you've been uh, tracking in this series, this should sound very familiar to you. He teaches the word of God with boldness. And so the people get the illusion, they get the connection, and they say, this is a prophet. We see this all throughout the Gospels. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 14, the people say of Jesus, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus himself said, a prophet has no honor in his hometown, speaking of himself. And so here you have the greatest prophet since the time of Elijah. And in fact, some people believe he was Elijah. Do you guys remember the story where Jesus says to his his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond, some say that you are John the Baptist, come back from the dead, and some say you are Elijah. Now, if not Elijah, the disciples clearly believe that he was in the mold of Elijah. There's a very interesting story in uh, Luke chapter 9. And in the story, Jesus is rejected by this Samaritan village. And then, do you know what the disciples say? In verse 54, they say, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume him? What are they doing? They are thinking about 2 Kings chapter 1, the story of Elijah and the soldiers. Because they're thinking, if Jesus is the greatest of all the prophets, then he can call down fire upon his enemies like Elijah. But the text says that Jesus rebuked them. Very interesting. Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a hill overlooking Jerusalem. Jesus is gathered with his disciples to pray. Suddenly, in the dead of night, soldiers armed with clubs and and, uh, swords come to arrest Jesus, and they have received orders to bring him to Pilate, this evil ruler who is opposed to God. Does that sound familiar to you? And then, to the utter astonishment of the disciples, these pagan Romans are able to do what Ahaziah tried to do but failed to do, which is they lay hands on the prophet of God, they put him on trial, they torture him, and then they hang him on the cross. It is hard to communicate what a shock this was. I want you to imagine that this had happened to the prophet Elijah. That this is how Elijah's life ends. That's how the story ends. 
The followers of Jesus were utterly bewildered by this. And then the crowds watching Jesus' crucifixion, they hear Jesus cry out. And it sounds like he's saying, Eliyah, Eliyah. Right? It sounds like he's saying, Elijah, Elijah, why am I being forsaken? And then in verse, in verse 49, it says, the people say, let's wait and see whether Elijah will come and save him. What are they waiting for? They're waiting to see if fire from heaven will come down and consume the soldiers. But it doesn't. Instead, the text says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. He perishes on the cross. I want you to know that when you understand this story, when you understand the connection between 2 Kings chapter 1, Matthew 27, you will understand the message of Christianity. Because Christianity says that Jesus is a prophet. He is not only the greatest of all prophets, he is the ultimate prophet. Because he came um, not just as the word of God, I mean, not just to speak the word of God, he is the word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. He is the Logos. He didn't just come to tell people about, about God. He is God in human flesh to, be, to come to be with his people. But that introduces a problem. Remember what I said earlier. God is not just a God of mercy. He's a God of justice absolute justice, who will by no means clear the guilty. And so how can sinful human beings stand before a holy God? You know, when I read the news, do you know what I see? I see human beings clawing at each other and trying to destroy each other. I see murder. I see theft. I see all kinds of evil things. And it's not just evil that's out there but the evil is in us. It's in our hearts. And so how can you and I, how can we stand before God? How can we have a relationship with God? And the answer is the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus did not come to bring the fire of judgment to fall upon the soldiers. He came to bear the fire of God's judgment. This is why the the soldiers, this is why fire does not come down on the soldiers, because the fire came down on Jesus. Jesus did not cry out, Eliyah, Eliyah. He did not say, Elijah, Elijah, why have you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, he was experiencing hell. He was experiencing the outer darkness. He was experiencing the unquenchable fire. So that if you and I, if we put our faith in him and believe in him, we will not perish, but grace and mercy will flow to us from the cross. You know, in the account of the cross, there's another captain. Did you know that? There's another captain who sees the truth of God. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54 it tells us that there was a centurion 
a Roman centurion who was in charge of the soldiers. And it says that when he saw Jesus die, he was filled with awe. And then this is what he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we see all throughout the Old Testament, you have peppered, you have seeded all of these images and illusions and paradigms and frameworks so that we can understand the greatest event in the history of the world, the crucifixion of the Son of God. We pray that this truth would penetrate our hearts, it would move us and transform us, and it would make us into new people who love you and obey you, and who love others and care for others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.